Okay, the series we started uh, beginning of the year is Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. Um, six weeks long, five questions to help you make better decisions. Uh, today's topic is the conscience question. So I want to start with a question. <laughs> when does your conscience bother you the most? Different for all of us. What makes you feel guilty? Another way I ask that question. For some people, it's maybe a surrounding food. Maybe you're diabetic and you feel guilty eating certain things. Um, maybe um, my wife and I are on a uh, restricted diet. Most people are. So it's easy to feel your conscience bother you about food. Maybe it's that second dessert or whatever it might be. Maybe it's around spending money. Unfortunately, I had to buy a new TV this week. I didn't feel guilty about spending it, but I certainly didn't appreciate having to spend it. But some people feel guilty about spending money on certain things. Maybe it's something you um, uh, read or something you look at or something you listen to. Or uh, could be lots of different things, right? Your conscience is based upon your value system. So if you have certain values about food, like my wife and I, then we would feel guilty in certain things. If you don't have, you feel like you need anything, that's fine. But it's based on our value system. Now, Depends on your value system, obviously. I'll give you a silly illustration or simple illustration from my life. I was driving on uh, Boonesboro Mountain Road last year sometime. It was a windy day, and that's on top of the mountain, uh, close to Interstate 70. And there's this house kind of sitting by itself, and there was a package that I could tell had fallen or blown out of the mailbox on the side of the road. So I'm traveling along about 45 miles an hour, uh, somebody, it's fine, somebody will pick it up or they'll come out and get it pretty soon. But my conscience started to bother me. Now, one reason is I have part of my value system, the golden rule, probably most of you do too, and that's do unto others that you would have them do to, for you or unto you. And so I'm thinking, okay, if that was my package that had kind of blown out of the mailbox uh, onto the side of the road, I would appreciate it if somebody would stop and pick it up, put it back. So I only went about... 10 seconds with this conscience bother me. And so I got to the next driveway. I turned around, went back. It probably took me five minutes. But my conscience was clear because I had adhered to my value system. Now, one thing that we struggle with sometimes, and I'm not going to take, take a lot of time to talk about it, is something I call false guilt. And that's when we just have this feeling of, you know, I'm just not good enough. I'm just not doing enough. I, you know, I'm just a ter terrible person. That, that's not God. <laughs> that's false guilt, and you uh, need to learn how to deal with that. But topic for another time. Now, most of us, and if you're not a Jesus follower, certainly glad you're listening. You, you have to deal with your conscience just like the rest of us. Uh, but if you're a Jesus follower, we have an extra component or a God component. In fact, we literally believe that the Spirit of God dwells in us, and so our conscience is... Be coincided with the Spirit of God. So, what do you do <laughs> with guilt, a bad conscience, guilty conscience? In fact, and I've told you this before, I've never been intoxicated. Some of you probably have. And somebody was arrested for intoxication, made this statement. I thought it was interesting. I had the right to remain silent, he said but I didn't have the ability to. 
because the alcohol or drugs or other things inhibit your ability to listen or abide by your conscience. So what do you do? So that's what we're going to try and answer today. Quick review, though. Good questions make good decisions. Better questions make better decisions. So we're giving you some sample questions to help you make decisions. We already have a system or a grid of questions. Is this going to be fun? Am I going to enjoy this? Is this going to hurt somebody? Is my spouse going to find out? Uh, is this going to affect my credit score? I mean, there's all kinds of questions you and I already have. We're just giving you a few extra, hopefully, to help. Now, questions aren't enough. Good questions aren't enough, even. First, you have to ask the questions, but you can ask them and ignore, ignore the answers, or you can answer uh, dishonestly. So you have to ask the questions, whatever grid you have. You have to answer honestly to the question, but still that's not enough because then you can go off and do anything you want. We all know, have done, known when, what the right thing to do is and we've done the wrong thing, right? So we've known the answer and we've acted contrary to it. So fewer regrets if we ask the good questions, answer honestly, and act upon those answers. Now one reason this is so important is because none of us live in a vacuum. We all interact with other people, even if you're a single person. You come in contact with people at work or at church or family members, so forth. So you're not the only person impacted by your decisions. Um, so it's important that we make good decisions for the people that we, especially the people we care about. Now we have a theme verse that's in Proverbs. Actually, it's twice in, in the book of Proverbs. It goes like this. A prudent person foresees, looks ahead, and sees negative consequences, sees danger, and of course avoids them or takes precautions so we don't wind up in that situation. But a simpleton, a person that's not too swift, uh, uh, slow person, uh, a person not thinking probably is the best way to put it, goes blindly on, suffers the consequences, just kind of full steam ahead, not thinking about the consequences, not thinking about the future, and of course there's always consequences. Another thing we've talked about is we all have this salesperson in our head, right? That's telling us, ah, oh, nobody will find out. No, it's fine. Uh, you don't need to think about the future. Uh, and so we have to deal with that person, and it sounds a lot like us because it is us. So two weeks ago, we talked about what's called the integrity question. It goes like this. Am I being honest with myself? Really? Now, we added really because... Who's the easiest person to deceive? Ourselves. So it's really hard to answer this question because we deceive ourselves. But as best as we can tell, am I truly being honest with myself? That first question. Last week we talked about the legacy question. I really like this one because it says, what story do I want to tell? Or what story do I want other people to tell about me? So, maybe in your funeral. Just thought of this. When I die, what stories do I want people to tell about me? Hopefully it'll be stories that would be honoring to God and, and the people around me. So I think it's a really good general question when we're making uh, major decisions. So today we got the conscious question, conscience question, and it summarizes it this way. Is there a tension, internal tension, that deserves my attention? We call that conscience or uh, uh, a guilty conscience or uh, unsettled conscience. Lots of definitions of conscience. I put one on the screen here for you. An inner feeling, it's really not a feeling, I don't believe, 
but an inner feeling or voice viewed as acting as a guide. So I, I view it, I approach it as this guide for my decision-making of rightness or wrongness of my behavior. Now, technically, it's not a feeling. It might, it's, might have, you know, butterflies in our stomach, but technically, it's a decision or a decision we are struggling with, a decision we're trying to make. We used this term last week. Uh, sometimes we think of it as a red flag. There's just something off. There's something not quite right. There's something that, that needs more attention or has gotten my attention, and I, uh, I have to decide what I'm going to do about it. Now, we all have biases. Uh, Jesus followers have biases. Other people may have different biases. And so that complicates things. Uh, stress of the situation. I've got to make a decision now. I've got to make it now. I've got to make a decision before tomorrow. I've got... So stress always adds an extra difficulty to decision-making. But as Jesus followers, those of us who are, there's even a higher or greater component than that. And just quick two verses out of uh, Corinthians where Paul is giving us kind of a warning or suggestion. You say, I'm allowed to do anything. So it's not immoral, it's not illegal, but I can do it. But not everything is good for you, okay? It's not immoral, illegal, eat an extra, piece of, extra dessert, extra piece of cake, but is it really good for you? Is it really good for me? I'm allowed to do anything again, but not everything's beneficial. Is it going to be beneficial to me? But not only just beneficial to me, notice what he says secondly. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. So in my decision-making process, it's not is it right or wrong. Is it not just good, good, or good for me or beneficial to me, but is it good and beneficial to those around me? Especially those, obviously, that we care about. So it's okay when we say but. It's not the best thing to do. Another complication is this. <laughs> we all have a tendency to ignore or to dodge the truth by discounting the truth teller. Now, as a married person, I'll have to admit the person that, that fits this category the most for me is my wife. All right? When she has an alter or different opinion than me, it's easy for me to discount what she's telling me, even if it's true, by saying, well, she doesn't really know much about that, for example. Most of you know I do carpentry work. I built my own house. So uh, I kind of discount what she has to say about carpentry. But anyway, long story short, we're three of us, her, the architect, and I are designing our house. It goes back about 15 years ago. And we decided the kitchen wasn't big enough. So we had to make the kitchen bigger, but then the doors wouldn't fit. Front and back doors wouldn't fit. Most of you have been to my house. You know what my house looks like. So my wife's sitting there. She said, well, just put them on an angle. Oh, yeah, that would work. And if you've been to my house, our front and back door are what? They're on an angle because of my wife's suggestion. So we all have a tendency to dodge those truths, especially if they're persons like our mom or our spouse or our kids. Um, so that's a thing we have to guard on. So back to our question. If there's something that bothers you, let it bother you. Don't ignore it. Don't make excuses for it. Try and figure out what it is. Take the time. Take the energy. Take the effort. Okay, why is this bothering me? Now, sometimes it's just you can't figure it out and you move on with your decision. Most of the time, I would say, if something's bothering you, there's a good reason 
it's bothering you. In fact, sometimes it doesn't bother you initially until somebody else suggests something else. So this wasn't bothering me until my wife suggests, did you think about this? And I think, no, I didn't think about this. Now it's, now it's beginning to bother me. No excuses. So, pay attention to the tension. Don't ignore it. Don't make excuses. Now, we're going to look at a historical figure, a, a Bible figure, somebody that's pretty familiar to most of you, at least part of his story. Maybe not the story part we're going to talk about today. But it's a guy by the name of David. And there's a lot written about David, so he has a lot of stories. Some of it's good, some of it's not so good. So we meet David, as you read the Bible, as a teenager. In fact, the prophet Samuel comes to his dad's his house, his, talks to his dad, Jesse, and says, Hey, God's told me that one of your sons is going to be king, which is kind of strange because Saul is king, and most of the time the oldest son of the king becomes the next king, which would be Jonathan. But God told this prophet, no, David needs to be the next king. Well, not David, one of Jesse's sons. So Jesse assumes it's the oldest son. He brings the oldest son in. He says, no, it's him, next son, not him, next son. I don't know, five or six sons go by. And Jesse says, okay. And he says, is this, Samuel says to him, is this all your sons? And he said, well, no, there's this, the youngest son. He's out taking care of the sheep. Uh, Samuel says, I'm not leaving until you bring him in. He brings him in. He's David. And he says, yes, this is the one that God wants to be the next king. So the next thing we know about David is uh, his brothers are off fighting in, uh, with Saul in the, in the army. And they meet this giant Philistine by the name of Goliath. Nobody will fight him. And Jesse sends him to check on his brothers. And he's there. He hears this Goliath taunting his God. And he just can't stand it. He says, won't anybody fight this guy? Nobody would. So he said, I'll fight him. And long story short, we know that he defeats Goliath. So now, all of a sudden, he is a national hero for saving the army and, and saving the country and killing Goliath. <clears throat> so Saul brings him into uh, the court. He's in, in the castle. But he also begins to become jealous because David's more popular than him. And if you're the king, you don't want anybody more popular than you. So he goes to such extreme, he actually tries to kill David. Excuse me. And so David is on the run. And if you read the text, eventually he gathers together about 600 malcontents, uh, people on the run like himself. And he's got this small army. And he's, he's trying to survive, stay alive, and, and avoid Saul. Of course, Saul's king and has the you know, the armies of the, of, of the nation of Israel. So that's where we're going to pick up the story. So this is in First Samuel chapter 24. After Saul returned from fighting the Philistines one more time, he was told that David had gone into the wilderness of En Gedi. So he had a spy or somebody tell him where he was. Now, most of you haven't been there. Probably nobody here has been there. Uh, but Dev and I were there a couple of years ago, so I thought I'd share a picture of what it looks like. And we think of wilderness or desert, more like desert. We think of sand desert, but their desert's more rocks. So this is a picture of a place in Engedi where we literally were. Actually, there's an oasis there. That's why there's this little patch of green. But most of it's, it's desert with kind of this mountain range. And so uh, this is where David is. In fact, there's all kinds of caves along those mountains, some big, some small. Some can fit hundreds of people. 
And as we read the text, David is hiding in one of these caves. So Saul gets 3,000 of his best troops together to try and track down David to kill him. Search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats, wherever that is. I didn't figure that out. Does text does tell us it's where the roads pass through some sheep sheepfolds, whatever that might be. So probably close to a to a, an oasis. Next verse. And Saul went into a cave. Saul stopped his soldiers. Said, "Hey, I need to take care of business. Wait, wait here for me." And he goes into a cave to, as the text says, to relieve himself. But as it happens, I like that phrase. It just so happens what. Well, David and some of his men are in that exact, you know, hundreds of caves. David and his men are in that cave, hiding back uh, in that very cave. So, we would say a coincidence. Now, I'm not a big believer in coincidences. I'm in a believer in God-ordained events. And so, the text just says, but as it happened. So, kind of picture the... Dave, uh, Saul's coming into the cave. Now, he can't, you know, the light's behind him. David can see Saul. Saul can't see David and his men. So the text goes on. His men say to him, now's your opportunity. He's whispered this to him. The Lord's telling you, this is a God-ordained, this is God's arranged this. The Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy in your power to do with as you wish. So if I'm David, you know, my soldiers saying, you know, we've been on the run, we're going to stay on the run as long as Saul's alive, and this is our opportunity. God's arranged it. God's ordained it. This is your chance to take care of the king. And revenge, if you will. So the text goes on. David starts to creep up behind Saul. But as we're going to find out, his conscience began to bother him. In fact, it bothered him a lot. And so he didn't kill the king. He had this tension, this conflicting uh, ideas. Uh, And he just cut off a portion of Saul's robe. So we can summarize it this way. The advice he was getting was kill the king and you become the king. You've already been told you're going to be the next king. And if the present king is dead, then you become the king. In the story, taken care of. So why ignore maybe what seemed to be the obvious? Well, a couple of issues. One is we believe that we can predict outcomes. He could have said, well, if I kill the king, then I'll become the king. Was there any guarantee that he would become the king if he killed the king? The soldiers may have came and killed him. Or they might have picked somebody else to be a king. Oh, you know, David, he's a a murderer. He just killed the last king. So logic kind of seems to say to us that's going to be the outcome, but we don't know. I'll give you a silly illustration. A couple weeks ago, I told you about this. I went down to North Carolina on a Sunday afternoon after church, went down there to help him lay some hardwood floors. Now, Sunday afternoon, I think, in 95, I had to go down 95, uh, it's not going to be too bad. The problem was it was the first weekend of the year, which made it a what? A holiday weekend. 
So we get no longer, we get around the Beltway heart, heart, and get into Northern Virginia, guess what happens? Stop and go traffic. Multiple times going 95 down toward Richmond. So instead of taking five hours, it took us closer to seven hours to get there. I thought we could get there in five hours. I believe I could predict the outcome, but I was wrong, right? And we've all done this, and it's all happened to all. In fact, let me put it this way. Have you ever been disappointed? I was disappointed it took us that long to get there. Anytime you and I are disappointed, we predicted an outcome that was different than the outcome, right? Oh, it'll be a great vacation if we go here. And you go, and it's not such a great vacation, right? Oh, this will be a lot of fun to do this. And it wasn't a lot of fun. Oh, somebody, so-and-so would be happy if I do this or I buy them this, and they're not happy. So, we believe we can predict outcomes. We're not really that good at it. So, on the screen, have you ever been disappointed? We already talked about that, right? Uh, so, we said last week that our decisions are determining the story we get to tell. So, I kind of thought about it this way. David, you know, if he had killed Saul and became king, and 20, 30 years later, he's sitting around with his grandson, grandchildren, and his grandchildren say, hey, Grandpa, tell us about how you became king. Um, well, King Saul snuck in this cave where I was hiding, and I snuck up behind him and cut his throat, and that's how I became king. Is that the story you want to tell? I don't think so. Now, he exhibited something that we all have in limited supply, and that's self-control. Can you imagine the self-control to say, okay, it seems like God's just put Saul in my, in my hands here to kill. My soldiers are encouraging me to do this. How did he have the self-control to not do it? Well, part of his value system as a Jesus follower would have been the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten Commandments is not to kill. This would be killing. This would be murder even though Saul was trying to kill him. So the text goes on and even ups his conscience. It's really amazing. David's conscience began to bother him, not because he was thinking of killing Saul, but simply because he did what? He disrespected the king by cutting off a piece of his robe. So he goes, takes a piece of cloth back to his men, and he says to the men, the Lord forbid, this is his value system, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord the King. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. Okay, Saul is king because God wanted to be king, and who am I to go against God? Now, this is something that reminded me that we all need to be reminded of. We all like to complain about the government, right? Complain about this politician, that politician. One thing we need to realize is all governments are in place because of God's permissive will. Now, we don't have to agree with them, but we have to acknowledge the fact that those people are in authority over us. It's important for us to be, you know, pay them respect. Again, if it goes against God's, God's word, then um, we, have to, we have to protest. But otherwise, God has placed those people there. So I'm sure his men said, well, if you can't kill him, we can. Because we're tired of hiding out. We want to be, you know, safe and free. 
So the text goes on and says he restrained his men. He said, no, no, I can't do this, and I don't want you doing it. So he didn't let them kill Saul. So Saul finished. He left the cave, going his way. And so left the cave, went down to meet his men. So this part is really amazing to me. Why would even David do that? He could have just let him go, and he would have been fine. But again, there was something in David's character, something in his value system, or something in his conscience said, I can't let this go this way. I have disrespected the, the king just by cutting off a piece of his robe. So he came out and shouted after Saul. Saul's down the valley someplace. He shouts to him. Here's what the text says. He says, my lord the king, you're still king, right? You're my king. And when Saul looked around, David bowed before him. So he didn't listen to his troops. He had the cloth, and if I skipped a couple of verses. He said, uh, Saul, um, here's proof <laughs> that I could have killed you, but I didn't. And then the text goes on. May the Lord judge between us. All right, I'm not going to be the judge. He's going to be the judge. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you're trying to do to me, but I will never try and harm you. I will never return bad for good. I will not compromise my belief system, my value system. I will not compromise my conscience. And the text goes on, May the Lord therefore judge which of us is right and punish the guilty one. He is my advocate. He's my defender. He's my judge. Like the Lord is. Let him judge. And he, I believe, will rescue me from your power. Providential, God-ordained this meeting. I didn't betray my conscience, my belief system, and I'm going to leave it up to God. Now, the problem, one problem with our conscience is this. Our conscience are often inconvenient, aren't they? It's just inconvenient. There's a little inconvenient for me to stop and go around, turn around and go pick up this package. Other times, it's really more inconvenient. It was certainly inconvenient for David, wasn't it? Because, okay, Saul's trying to kill you. He's trying to find you. Now he's found you. In fact, you told him where you, where you are. But he had to be true to his conscience. So, text goes on. And when David had finished speaking, Saul called back. Is that really you, my son, David? Saul's kind of all over the place in his relationship with David. And then he began to cry. I believe his conscience began to bother him. And then his text says, he says to David, you're a better man than I am. You've not repaid me good for you. You're a better man than I am. Put on your, on your outline this, this phrase. Saul was humiliated, not by David's military strengths, but by what? By David's humility. You're a better man than I am. So what, if you're Saul, what do you do now? You hate this, at times you hate this guy. You want him dead. He's more popular than you are. He's going to become the next king, say, your son, Jonathan. What do you do? Okay, David, I'll give you a two-minute head start. Now I'll come chase you. What do you do? Well, he couldn't do anything but tuck his tail between his legs and go home, right? That's text, text says. So Saul went home. And David and his men went back to their stronghold. So 
Again, last week's question, do you want to be the hero of your story? David certainly was this time, wasn't he? Now, you read through the, New, the Old Testament, you'll find out not years later, but months later, Saul's back fighting the Philistines. Somebody shoots an arrow, pierces his armor, a fatal and kind of a strange value system, I guess. But you don't want to be killed by your enemy. You better be killing yourself. So he falls on his sword and dies. And Jonathan's also killed in this battle. And what happens? David becomes the next king. Now, think about this. If David had known that in six months he was going to be king, would it have been much of a temptation to kill Saul? Nah, I just have to wait six months. But see, we don't know outcomes, do we? That's why it's so, so important for us on your outline. Pay attention to the tension. Pay attention to your conscience. We might say pay attention to the Spirit's conviction or leading. Now, all of us are dealing with this some part in our lives. All of us are somewhere between turning around and picking up the package and hopefully not trying to kill somebody, all right? Our decisions are somewhere in between. But when there's a tension, we need to pay attention to it. So the conscience question is this. Is there a tension that deserves my attention? Is there something I'm doing that's going conscious, uh, contrary to my value system? Or if you're a Jesus follower, contrary to God's value system. This conscience deal is a pretty big deal to God. So here's my next step for you. I'll give you something Paul, something else Paul wrote instructing us how to deal with our conscience. He says, cling to your faith, that's on one hand, in Christ, and keep your conscience clear. That's instruction, probably, probably in the imperative. It's probably command. I command you, God commands you, to keep your conscience clear. Obey the Spirit of God. Some people haven't done that. And some people, and you and I have done this, deliberately violated our conscience. I know this is the right thing to do, but I'm going to do just the opposite. As a result, if you continue to do that, your faith can be shipwrecked. What a word. Hopefully it's never shipwrecked your life, bad decisions you've made. But that's God's instruction to us. Um, I want you to take some time and think about that this week, to cling to your faith and keep your conscience clear. Let me pray with you. I'm going to let you go. Uh, Father God, thank you. I mean, thank you for the story about David, from David's life. It's amazing how uh, just true to his belief system and his faith he was early in life. Later, later on, he got away from it. Um, God, we all have a conscience, and it's guilty sometimes. It bothers us sometimes. There's this tension. And God... Uh, None of us like it. Sometimes we make excuses or try and ignore it, but the wise thing to do is pay attention. Why is this bothering? All of us that are Jesus followers, at some point in our life, the Spirit of God convicted us of our sin and our need for you, God, and for salvation, and we responded to that and accepted your gift and entered into a personal relationship with you. So if someone is listening to this today and their conscience is bothering them, Maybe the Spirit of God is speaking to you. Yes, you need to get things right with God. You need to get your sins forgiven. You need to uh, 
uh, enter in a personal relationship with God, not just for now, but for eternity. So I pray that you would make that decision, and please let us know if you do. But God, most of us are Jesus followers, and we thank you for your wisdom, because it's so much better to live with a clear conscience. So I pray that we would ask those good questions, that we would uh, answer honestly, and then act upon it. Not only for our good, but good for those around us, and for Jesus' followers, for your glory, God. Thank you for this opportunity. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.